0: The guy's a go maniac, I'm an easy target, or nightlife's an easy target. Yeah, I'm, I always remember, I, I, you know, I told a story, when Open Club USA, up, uh, a captain from the local precinct came in and said, you know, Gation, I'm happy you're here, and I'll tell you why. Because every night I'm in a pissed off mood, okay? I know I can go on one of your place, and torture you to death. Money, success. Hello, I'm
1: James St. James. This is Night Fever, New York nightlife legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond. I am joined as always by my co-host, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. We're celebrating the icons of the club scenes, the party monsters, the club kids, the celebutantes, the night crawlers, the downtown denizens. Today, we are very welcome to have with us a nightlife legend. He is a club owner and party promoter extraordinaire. He is a movie producer. He is the author of a book of memoirs. I have it right here. The Club King, My Rise, Reign, and Fall in the New York Nightlife. He is the subject of a 2011 documentary made by his daughter, Jen Gation. He is have uh, someone I've known for about 35 years, and I don't think we could have done this show without his input and without his perspective. I'm very excited to welcome Peter Gation. Thank you very much.
0: Great to be with you, uh, guys, James Fenton. Randy.
1: Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen you. How are you doing? It's
0: been, what, about 25 years?
1: I think the last time I saw you was in 96, probably, when I left New
0: York. Yeah, it's been a while.
1: In the beginning of your book, uh, in your prologue, you talk about taking an ayahuasca trip in, uh, in Peru, and that that is sort of what crystallized... It sort of put your life into perspective, and that's what was maybe sort of the the uh, the reason for starting the book or something like that. I know Randy, you've done ayahuasca before too, haven't you?
2: I, I haven't done it, but my best friend is is sort of the expert in ayahuasca, along with with her wife, and um, I do understand for many people, including her, it is you know this gateway to clarity.
0: Yeah, you know, a lot of people that have had like um, seen shrinks for for years and years. They say this is like ten years of therapy in in one session. Jennifer, my daughter, basically bulldozed me into doing it. It was just like you know I sort of done this LSD stuff and everything else, and she just kept pushing and pushing to the point where if you don't go, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I mean, she. Was- <laughs> So I, I went, well, we, we didn't go to Peru, actually. We went, it was upstate New York. And uh, the shaman is a, like a credited Western doctor. He's, he's like unbelievable. All I can say is that when I came back, all I could talk about <laughs> with my friends or whatever is you got to do ayahuasca. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a high in that, you know, you're partying and whatever. In fact, you know, the room was like 20 people. Uh, nobody talks to each other once, once they take the uh, the, the potion. And uh, you're just onto your own space for six, eight hours. It's just uh, unbelievable. Like I highly recommend it to anybody.
1: Well, now, you know, Peter, I have a lot of unresolved trauma in my life, and I have a lot of issues. Is that something? Would would that just send me in down a rabbit hole, or is it something that I need to do to maybe heal?
0: I, I think you need to do it, but it's really important that you have with a shaman whoever's directing the ceremony. That you know that knows her stuff, and it's almost like going to the best concert you've ever been in your life. They, you know, upstate New York, they've got a, you know, a lot of communities, you know, musicians and that sort of stuff. And there's music in the background, and, and there's simple... I'm just telling you, you, you uh, James, you know Jennifer well. Uh, yes, yes. Get her to hook you up. Okay, it is. In fact, I I, I think they're going to start. You know, they've been off for a year now, obviously because COVID. But I, I think they're starting in the fall. Is the last I heard about. It. But and, and you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of credible people in California or in LA specifically that that are uh, good at with you know at organizing it and and making sure you experience a nice trip. And they like they have volunteers to make sure that you know there's a few people that they they don't go off their rocker so to speak, but they need like assistance and they're scared and whatever. And the whole setup is just, you know, just real life. I've done it about eight times now.
3: That's interesting. What was the big takeaway for you, Peter? Was there a big sort of aha moment? Or
0: yeah, I, there's certain things, you know, like in my case, obviously, my my loss, of my eye was very traumatic, and uh, you know, I could see it's like it's like watching a movie of your life, and I could actually see myself. I was six years old. when It happened. You could see the clothes that I was wearing you know, kissing my mother goodbye. And then it's like I said, watching a movie of your life and it really like puts you in perspective. And it was like a lot of times it was like so woe is me, but uh, yeah, it really made me consider like, geez, a lot of people around me were also affected by this. I like, mean, my parents and whatever else. So this is, you know, that's just the one experience, but you get into, you, like I said, you literally watching a movie of your life and you can get into the, you know, the details, the kiss, the conversation 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. It's amazing stuff.
1: Let's get into that about losing your eye, because one of the things that I always remember about you, that I always remember hearing about you, was that you lost it during a hockey accident, and come to find out that it was just sort of a a PR thing that John Harmon came up
0: with. No, it was something I never, you know, know, you're written most of my, it was something I never wanted to talk about with anybody. It was just like, you know, it was very private Right. So I don't know. He put it out there somewhere, and he said, "Wait, well, I did." I said, "Well, that's not way it happened." Well, you know, nobody cares. Just yeah, it was a hockey accident. So I never talked about it any more than that. Um, but it happened when I was six years old. It was a baseball incident, right? I, I went to uh, Catholic um, Catholic schools. Long story short, in grade one, we didn't have a, our own baseball and and bat to play And I remember pestering the the, the brother brother father, whatever you want to call him. For like a week finally it gives me this old ball that didn't even have a skin on it, it was just string. We didn't have a bat. So we, some kid found a broken mop stick or broomstick or whatever. And as I was pitching, I got distracted across the street and I just turned my you know, left and it was right there. So I, yeah, I never really saw it. Um, but anyway, that's the story.
1: I guess you took the settlement money for that. You got a, a store,
0: right? A jean store. In the 60s, and again, I come from a very small town. Uh, Cornwall, this is in Ontario, right? Right. It's a mill town, you know, 40,000 people now. It was 40,000 people a you know, 100 years ago. It's just one of those towns that always sort of stays the same. The retailers were they're all like nice old Jewish guys that didn't know the difference between an elephant pant and a bell bottom and a tie. you just going to buy it in Cornwall. And, and this, this is during like the hippie era, right? Uh, yeah, so 67. Six, six, so, anyways, you couldn't buy uh, bell bottoms or tie dies or, or any of that kind of, or you know, everybody was wearing sandals and you know, hippie shit. So, long story short, I went to college at one year, it took like 101, just because I was like a bird course in, in the 60s everybody took, and I figured, you know, I'm wasting my time here. It's like, what am I doing? So, when I finally got the uh, the settlement, uh, I got to actually. When I was seventeen, I borrowed money from an uncle. Of, you know, against that money, I uh, opened up uh, a jean store.
1: It's sort of the cool store in your your town.
0: The only um, store that sold <laughs> blue jeans, and, <laughs> and, and you know, sandals, and yeah, those. Yeah, you
1: know. it's so funny to think of you as as a in retail. It just it it's very sort of incongruous.
0: Yeah, it really taught me a lesson in that. That's not what I want to do for the rest of life. I remember being you know tortured where. A young girl, of fourteen, fifteen, would come with her mother to buy a pair of jeans, and would be, thought I'd be crying. The mother saying the jeans are too tight. No, I want them. And I'm standing like a schmuck for fifteen minutes saying, no. <laughs> "Yeah, I can't do this." Back then, I bought a pair of jeans for four dollars, sold them for eight dollars. Um, bought a t-shirt for a buck and a half, sold it for three. You're you're hustling. <laughs> Yeah, everything that seems simple.
1: And then you bought um, a hotel in, in town. Your thinking was, is you wanted to open a bar, but to get a liquor license, you had to buy something that had already that already had a liquor license.
0: Yeah, liquor license in Ontario back then was two kinds. You either had a restaurant license, which had sold 50-50, or you had what's called a hotel or tavern license. And hotel is like, not describing it well. Long story short, it had like 20 rooms but I had a license that had permitted you to sell without a percentage of being food. And, um, yeah, my opening act was rush back then. Um, for
1: opening night that you, you had a new band, a new,
0: I was rush that nobody ever heard of or whatever. This is not rush that sells out Madison square garden. And, and, and you know, the, the, yeah, I used to travel to Toronto. Clubs were hit little over there, you know, uh, listen to bands on on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, then you know, I'd hire them for, uh, for Cornwall. Um, and Rush was the first one I ever hired. Disco
1: is right around the corner. And you go to a disco convention in New
0: York City. Yeah. First place I ran to in New York City, obviously. You know, here in Rhode Island, my life was 42nd Street. It was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> did movies, like, you know, whether it be like Cowboy or whatever. But it's like to go there as a small town. Canadian kid <laughs> and getting like, oh my God, it really is much worse than it was much worse in a better way. But it was, you know, New York was great back then.
1: Were you intimidated by the other club owners that you met there?
0: Oh, yeah. I, I, I was, I remember there's the club owner actually from, I think it was called 2001 Space, when Tavolta, the one in John Travolta, the movie was shot at. Right. Yeah. And they, they were sitting there and I was like, geez, I'm such a pretender. It's like these, guys that, you know, big time club owners. You know, meanwhile, that place, you know, all I had really was a couple of pieces of hanging plastic and a dance floor. But anyway, yeah, I was beyond intimidating. Uh,
1: around this time, you you see uh, an ad for a club that's happening in South Florida called Rum Bottoms, which is uh, such a South Florida name. That is so
0: funny. I never read the New York Times in my life. You understand, there was no internet back then, and, and it was hardly, you know, you know my family or nobody I ever even subscribed to New York Times in, in Cornwall. Picked up business opportunities. Look at it and there's this place they describe anybody with an IQ of more than fifty would have said this is too good to be true. But anyway, they described this club, six hundred thousand dollar light system, four hundred thousand dollar sound system, you know, large drop da 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 sell price four hundred thousand, which it's a sound system were <laughs> you know, alone a million dollars. So anyway, yeah, you know, I, I didn't even go back to Cornwall. I got on the next plane to go to uh, Florida. The place was like Virgie on Chapter 11, I ended up negotiating a deal. And then I had a buddy in Canada who did uh, really, really great sound and light systems. And anyway, we got the government to fund basically a million dollars of sound and light on a lease that I signed with him. So sort of like a total smoke and mirrors. You know, I had one of the biggest clubs in, in, in America at, uh, I guess I was what, about 24 then.
1: And you realize right off the bat that the gay crowd, they're the fabulous people. They're the fun ones. And they're the ones bringing the money and the outfits and everything. Oh,
0: yeah. I thought throw very early. But, yeah, I think in a book that yeah, I mentioned again – Nobody, when I say nobody, nobody's out of the closet in Cornwall. You know, in, in 60s. <laughs> So when I took over the place, they had booked a party for the big publication that, you know, best drag queen, best this, best that, award dinner. So I remember walking in there and there's like 1,500 people with everything from like fishnet socks to chaps to, <laughs> to, you know, leather dress. To, you know, I had never seen that in my life. You know, a little bit of glimpse I got of that was maybe the Al Pacino movie. Uh, cruising. Yeah, Cruising. I don't even know if I went and saw that movie or saw it later on TV or whatever. Point of the story, I was terrified. It was <laughs> and then I went out and, you know, everybody was having like a really good time. Nobody was hurting each other. Struck conversations up with a few or whatever. They were fun as can be, laughing, whatever. It seems like, you know, great clientele. I have. One of the
1: big... Things that happened that was really great for you was that you booked village people right before Macho Man came out.
0: Some of that was dumb luck or whatever. Uh, but that week of Easter that year, we had booked the tramps, the village people. I think it was two times a fund or, or uh, anyway, uh, they had the San Francisco and they had obviously YMC, I think, hit that week or whatever. And then we had the tramps with you know, Disco Inferno and whatever. And actually, I, I had people asked me, you know, did you? your father owned a radio station or whatever because those songs were such rotation. It was like every fourth song was Village People or, or The Tramp.
1: And you had, you had Grace Jones and Sister Sledge, Gloria Gaynor came down there.
0: So it- All the people that had hits, you know, uh, disco hits back then.
1: So then you turn your eye to Atlanta. That was going to be the next place that you're going to conquer.
0: I think probably a lot of people, want to get something, like I mean, when I had the club in Cornwall at, at 21, 20, you know, 20, I guess it was 21, I thought I had the world by the short hair. Like life was never going to get better. I'm you know, driving a Mercedes sports car and nobody in Cornwall has one of those. Life could not get better. You know, a couple of years, on, I'm like, you know, there's got to be more life than this. I always wanted to be an American. Olympics or anything like that, I was cheer for the Americans. I don't know why, uh, but it, I, I just did. So... That was my, like, oh, boy, like, I'm going to become an American. It was a really big deal for me. So I went there for three years. And, and to be honest with you, Florida, thought I was on top of the world, whatever. But, you know, I, I sort of enjoy the seasons. I sort of enjoy weather changes somewhat or whatever. And, and it's just like Florida was like, you know what, let, let me check somebody else out. It's sort of funny, well, I went to Texas to so look at a couple of clubs. Went to Houston, got off the plane, made it downtown. My perception was, like, 80% of the guys were wearing cowboy boots and, and cowboy hats and, and, and <laughs> you know, uh, powder blue pants and yellow shirts. I didn't <laughs> even go to the properties. You know, this is not, this this is not for me. So then I went to Dallas, and actually they showed me the, uh, the theater that uh, Oswald, remember where Oswald got caught? Oh, yeah, sure. Didn't have the right vibe or whatever. So I guess not. <laughs> so I went to Atlanta, and we, you know, this is, place it was a dinner theater that they'd spent a lot of money but it wasn't doing well and you know made a deal and and uh in the 70s the 70s the best time ta- they're the best time you know was pre-aids pre-herpes pre friends getting losing everything on cocaine i mean people were doing coke or whatever but they had not lost their livelihoods and you know their houses and their cars and <laughs> uh, anything else yet so you know the 70s was like just like it was just one of you know. Yeah, this is sexually like I said, there's no AIDS, there's no STDs, there's you know to speak of.
2: While you were building this empire, like did you ever go out to club? What was your social life like versus your professional life?
0: So, social life basically yeah, the club I had in Florida you know, and I, I was I was young and, and you know, I needed money Long so we were open. We had a six AM license. So it meant, you know, I was in the office and we were open seven days a week. So you know, social life, yeah, did I go for dinner with uh my dang girlfriend yeah but that was what the extent of. and as far as the uh, going out of the clubs or whatever to be honest with you i i don't know if i was pig-headed about it but i, I sort of always focused like i'm gonna be if I'm, I'm gonna be inspired i don't want to be inspired by another club and i was saying that was solid thinking but it was you know my arrogance or my fear or my insecurity or whatever the hell it was yeah i, I don't know so I, I got more from fashion magazines and art magazines and and music magazines, obviously, you know, it, you know, especially back then when you were booking acts, you had to, you know, really know what was happening on Billboard, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Your big get, the big thing that was going to lure the people in, lure the customers in, you decide you're going to have a
0: panther. That's, that's Atlanta.
1: Oh, Atlanta, right? Okay.
0: The best, and and seventies is all about, you know, mirrors, uh, chrome, spinning wheels, neon, or whatever. That you know, that was like the light show and the sound was what you know what you were trying to be better than everybody else was. We took over a dinner theater and there was a orchestra pit and we're just sort of sitting around during the day working and I don't even know whose idea it was everybody's like shit tired, like how about we put a, a pool in there and with glass fans for it. And you know, and then they just sort of like you know, yeah, that sounds sort of great. You know, what can we put in it? And then how about sharks? And, and anyway, just sort of snowballed. It was fun. I mean the customers love dancing over a shark cage and I, I I think I mentioned the bookers one night I'm by the front door and I got on the mic, somebody just went through the dance
1: floor. <laughs> <laughs> they fell through the glass floor.
0: No, what happened is this huge guy and we used to have back then everybody, you know, we, we had really tall speakers that you could climb up and dance on, which was you know really add the ambience. Actually people used to almost fist fight to get on top of the speakers. It was, you know, their thing. We had them on the stage you know, we had them all over. Anyway, he jumped on a, from a six foot speaker on the glass, and it went right through. Okay. We always we were in a panic. Uh, and actually, we had just taken the sharks off the, day, the night or two before. They were sand sharks. I don't know if they, but, you know, the panic would have been crazy. But the crazy thing is all we did is we put stanchions. It was a 4 by 8 piece that broke. It was like a whole bunch of 4 by 8 sheets of, of glass. Put stanchions around it. And everybody just kept dancing the night away like nothing happened.
1: (laughs) Um, Your opening night, um, Andy Warhol agreed to be the sponsor, right? He was the host of the night.
0: Yeah, he did invite him.
1: And that must have been, I imagine, having Andy Warhol, the Andy Warhol, come to your opening night. That must have been sort of like the the print uh, that must have sort of given you
0: especially back in the early eighties, the, the, the whole art, you know, whether it was even like a, you know, East village artists or, or whatever, they're like really starting to be more the, what you consider the lead horses or the cool people or whatever, than than models were, or whatever, not the models, or whatever were were not, but they, they really uh, culturally, they were really important to uh, New York city. So yeah, I mean, it was, you know, having Andy Warhol um, participate in your opening night was, was, yeah
1: and so you met andy and you did you get along with him was it did, were you a little intimidated
0: oh yeah no, I, I, went, I went to dinner with him probably about three four times not just him and i you know him and you know maybe four of us sixes or whatever i always thought he was a very really shy guy mart is a whip um but definitely pleasant to be around like you didn't feel like he was in any way ever going to be condescending or hurtful or whatever He was just a mild-mannered you know like really nice that was my impression
1: you also had you had meant a lot of art installations there, which I think was a
0: precursor to things that were going to happen in New York. Yeah, a lot of that. Some of that came off of like uh, what's that club that was on the Lower East Side that's there forever?
1: Pyramid, maybe. Pyramid Club. Yeah. Okay, Yeah.
0: Yeah, they had like little, you know, much lower budget or whatever. And Malcolm Council, where the first uh, first art director we hired, you know, came out of Pyramid Club.
1: And you also had something called Exciters, which is interesting you had, you started hiring the kids that were to come and you would pay them to come, dressed up in fabulous outfits, and um, you called them exciters, and they would sort of get the crowd going a little bit, right?
0: Okay, I, I don't remember that one, to be honest with you. Really? I, you know, yeah, I really, no. Um, you know, we always tried to do a party where at least it had some gay crowd uh, enthusiasm, or whatever. No, you know, my. I don't. I remember. You know. do we hire dancers? I don't think we hired dancers until the late eighties or whatever. I'm even trying to think about that.
1: Well, that's weird. No, because it's in your book, and you call you call them excited. And I kept thinking to myself that that's something that Michael always took credit for—that he was the one who started this. And here you were saying that you had you were doing this in Atlanta before you even got to New York.
0: See, yeah. I had stuff. Okay, you had a, you know a few, but probably not the extent. I'm trying to think like. Yeah, you know, remember this used to be this guy who would dance and would literally you know dance up the wall six feet and come back down. You know that that, that kind of stuff. And then you always have to try to make your staff as artistically eclectic as possible. You know, not like you know uh, tattooed from head to toe, but you, you know what you wanted your staff to have the sort of that you know, that art feel to them or, or you know cool feel or, or whatever. But to be honest with you, I, I, I have to think about it. Maybe yeah, by the end of the interview, I'll remember. <laughs>
3: So, was um, coming to New York was was Limelight your first club in New York?
0: Yeah, I, I've been looking in New York probably about for a year and a half or two. And I got to tell you, like you know, you ask about inspired clubs. I remember like reading about fifty four, obviously, for a lot of years. And I got to tell you, when I finally went there, I, I, I was really disappointed. I, I thought, it, as compared to our club in Atlanta, you know, from you know everything from sound to lights to, to, to whatever. I mean, I remember seeing the Moon and the Spoon, which I'd read about all my life. And you know it's basically a two piece supply with on ropes, you know, kind of a little bit of Christmas lights on them. And, and listen, Studio Fifty Four is is terrific. I'm not, you know, taking anything away from uh, that. But it, it, so a- anyway, um, I, I tend to ramble. So,
1: but when you came to New York, you, you were looking for something something architectural, something really diff something different that would stand out.
0: Yeah, when I came to New York, the the Chrome, neon, spinning wheels, whatever had been done to death. So it wasn't like I could say, okay, you know, Studio 54 had two of those big, or 20 of those big posts coming down. If I have 40 of them, it makes me better. Or if Studio 54 had 10 spinning wheels, if I had 20, it would make you know me more interested. And, and, and you know, like I said, War, Warhol, and that, I, I know they were always really high profile in, in in Manhattan, but that whole art scene was, like I said, it was really expanding. the weather And I just felt that... Art and architecture was the way to travel, and i less you know the real estate guy listen. I want something you know high ceilings architecturally interesting, but if you can find me a church, you know that's that's the ultimate. And uh, you know, I looked at a church. I actually even looked at the Beacon theater. I looked at a church on on the upper west side or whatever. And then when this one became available, I didn't even negotiate the price. She was, she had bought it the year before she being the woman that ran the, uh, I guess it was a rehab center. She had paid 600,000 for it the year before. I you new know, asking price was 1.6. I didn't negotiate. I didn't do anything. Yeah. Where do I sign? I mean, it was so perfect. It was downtown at high ceilings. It had a bunch of doors, which means you could comply with you know, all the, all the building codes and that kind of stuff. And, and back then, you know, uh, 20th, that area, okay, there was nobody living there to speak of. I mean, you know, the, those Bed baths, and Beyond and all those buildings were, were, long, long time ago, vacated. You know, there were homeless people living there. The whole 20th Street was just like small box companies or you know, industrial. Era. There's no restaurants or you know, I'm, anything like that at all.
1: So, so that by when nighttime comes, the whole place is just abandoned. It's just it's abandoned, you
0: know, which is. Good if you know the fewer neighbors you have in a nightclub business, obviously the better.
1: Um, and what was the state of the church? Did you have to put a lot of money into it?
0: Oh yeah, it was. It was the plaster was falling all over the place. You know, it had been ab- abandoned by the congregation about 35 years prior to that, and then this woman took it over as a rehab center, and um, they used the front part a little bit for you know off 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 Broadway plays, but it, it, no, it was no heating, there was no, you know, it was a lot of stained glass was smashed. Yeah, I put a lot, you know, back then I would put about $3 million. It was a lot of money back then.
2: You went to Catholic school. Were there any apprehensions?
3: Randy's a Catholic, I might just add, Peter.
0: <laughs> Here's was my way of justifying and very comfortably justifying. A church is a building when people go in and pray in it. Okay, that's what makes that thing a church. The Catholic church And I was an altar boy for like a whole bunch of years. So I'm well into it, trust me. Catholic church as a sacrament where they they deconcentrate a church building. Okay. Now, if that ceremony is good enough for them, who am I to question it? And that's the way I justified it in my mind.
1: Did you have people come in and pick it or was there a big hoo-ha when you
0: opened? Opening night, we literally had maybe three people with placards like don't dance on my religion and that kind of stuff. And what made what sort of made the most commotion that night? And they were, we didn't pay them; they were they were customers or whatever. It came with a, a, a crucifix that was, you know, whether it was six, eight foot long. But they were gay, It was a lot of fun. It got a guy in a loincloth on it, and the front door that there was really like narrow, so you know they had to tip them like the <laughs> the, to get them through. Um, and
1: that probably made the night. That was the, that was, the, that, was the, that was the big get.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, in Warhol was there that night too. He was there opening night. So, so once again, you have that imprint.
0: He he used to go out a lot back then, not just our place area. yeah, you know, he opened a club in London for me, opened a club in Chicago for me. Yeah, you know, I remember him and Cornelius guests, and they sort of had that entourage that yeah, you know, they were all over the place. Not all yeah, you know, all over, they went out they went out a lot. They were nightlife they were nightlife people.
1: It was Whitney Houston, the first time she ever performed in public was at the Limelight. Yeah. Do you remember that night?
0: yeah very well you know what happened that night we were doing the um, party for the Jackson family reunion all right you know remember the, the
1: right sure the motown yeah
0: called a blockbuster tour and we had you know huge blockbusters you know all over the decorated the place somebody misplaced the uh, i don't know if it was needles for whatever so, you know or a mic or whatever and it was delayed about 40 minutes and it was like a big hustle to go find whatever it was that was not allowing her yeah but her performance i remember talking to clive davis about it nobody had really seen it. He said yeah you can see this girl tonight yeah you will you right now she's the greatest thing you'll ever see like um and she was really great
1: so much of limelight i remember uh mostly fred rothbell mista up in the library with the vip room amazing amazing character that vip room the library was just it was where everybody ended up every single night it was the detailed crowd
0: yeah yeah i had a real cross-section you know, yeah like sort of downtown dress whether it be you know the steven sabins or the michael Mustos, and I mean you have like art dealers like andrew Cris- crispo and, and you remember him right
1: oh i remember andrew yes <laughs>
0: you have you know, sort of some you know business wall street guys and then you'd have some rock and roll people and but and fred was so good by the end of the night a lot of these people would actually be talking to each other it's like you know sitting in each each other's couches or whatever fred was really good
1: fred was a character fred was somebody who would talk to uh you know a prince and a bellboy or you know the bus boy he treated everybody the same and everybody and everybody loved he was a just a new york character
0: he was he could be pretty Snippy at times too. Man. So, he was very witty. I mean, he was funny, witty, but he he was like uh he was, you know, he was he was aggressive.
1: He was sort of a snappy old school queen. Yeah. yeah. But like, but everybody ended up always having a really good. I always remember Billy Idol being there. I always remember. I remember meeting Drew Barrymore as a yeah. ten year old. She was up there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right.
3: It definitely seems to me that there are sort of two limelights. So the, for that first period of the limelight and then the sort of Club Kid period of the limelight. Well, the, the Club Kid,
0: you is it's a different era in that the 80s, yellow. there was no like tabloid um, TV shows back then. Like, I, I remember, and I, don't, you know, I won't name specific celebrities, but I mean, You know, seeing them in like in horrible condition, okay? But they didn't worry about it back then. And it wasn't like, you know, uh, somebody's going to snap a picture of them or or this or or whatever. So I I think they they were much more comfortable in letting it all hang out. And then, you know, the 80s, I mean, you know, AIDS, like, really, uh, for New York, or at least the nightclub, I mean, you know, 85, 86 to 88, 89 were very hard to do anything that was exciting. You know, those years I opened London, I opened Chicago, because they hadn't been that hit Anywhere near what New York had, and you could you know do stuff that was interesting. So those years we did, you know, we basically went tourists for the most part.
1: But there was a lull, and then that's when um, Michael came in to do the first Disco Two Thousand. I guess that was eighty nine, probably
0: eighty nine ninety. But but back to the two eras. And let me say, I get a little bit angry about not angry at Limelight, but I got you know. There's so many niches in New York. Like, yes, Wednesday was really great for the club kids and, and the gays and whatever. But like, we you know, we we developed a night like Rock and Roll Church that lasted literally nine, ten years. To those people, Disco 2000 didn't exist. But you know, obviously Limelight was like, you know, like terrific. Same thing Tuesday we did, you know, Indu- industrial night, and then we had more traditional gay nights with Mark Berkeley, where it was more, more of a you know a Chelsea hardcore, you know, uh, Tom film not. Quite a normal feeling, but you know that kind of of, of 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 gay thing.
1: And we'll talk a little bit later about when you started doing hip hop nights at Tunnel oh, and yeah. Palladium.
2: Yeah. But part, of, but just just to go back to this because it's interesting because like those other nights were uh, equally as successful, right? They were like part of the engine of limelight, and it was, it was
0: legendary in those circles as. 2000 uh, disco was and probably
1: more financially sound, you know, solvent for you. You probably made more money off of those nights than you probably lost the money on Wednesdays.
0: We never lost money. That was with Michael. Yeah. I I sort of heard of Michael or whatever. And to be honest with you, the first night he did disco 2000, I wasn't there, but I came back the next day and I'm looking at the receipts and whatever. And we, we normally we did like for disco 2000, give or take 800 people on a Wednesday. All of a sudden, you know, I look at the numbers and we did like 1,700, but the receipts were less than what we did. <laughs> 80, so I remember Michael bringing him in and saying, listen, I'll be here again this week. And obviously the energy was good, da, 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 da. but yo, know, there's got to be structure to this. If you cannot make this financially viable, it doesn't have to be a home run, but it has to be financially viable. It won't sustain. And, and you know, believe it or not, I mean, you know, Michael, Michael was... In a way, difficult to deal with. In a way, he was, and he wasn't like the, the priciest queen that I ever met by any means. So he fight, you know, he sort of got it. So I mean, we would fight about budgets, and we'd fight about how many comps and how many drink tickets he was going to get, and that kind of stuff. And you know, the night really ballooned, and it was more than just club kids. And we you know Limelight had a, a reputation with the tourist anyway. We'd been around nineteen eighty three, so on any given night we had, you know, 400, 500 full pays. And in Michael of you know, somebody's got to pay the freight, and it, it's a really hard line to maintain between sort of being not too cool for school, but being not too cool for uh, the paying crowd. You know? And it's like, a, you know, it's a, it's a, a balance you've got to carry. And obviously, you're stricter at the door, you know, with some people that, you know, but, but it's, it's a real, like, you gotta, you know, you've got to think it out. Because in the end, like I said, if you don't make it financially sustainable, any jackass can, can pack a place and lose money
1: well you were also lucky that you had that huge dance floor that you could pack with paying customers and then you could have a room off to the side where the people who are not paying
0: like in the 70s everything was you know like disco boom 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 everybody does that one sound and, you know, and then it started to splinter off a little bit in the 80s or whatever so having secondary and tertiary dance floors with different kind of music uh made the limelight also you know uh, much more viable. I mean, if we had just been one big room that played only one type of music, yeah, I don't think it would have been you know, as great. And, and the idea is, is to really draw a cross section of people. It's like, you know in the end, they end up entertaining each other. The guy that sequence thinks the guy in the Armani suits a, you know, a jackass, and the guy in the Armani suits thinks the sequence guy's a loser. But in the end, they all sort of entertain each other. It's like, yeah, you know, it, it works. I mean, if everybody looked the same, the club gets pretty boring.
3: I'm so interested in what you say about Michael, because I think all of us here knew Michael as a as a very sort of intriguing person. Did, what were your sort of first impressions? Do you remember meeting him for the first time and what your impressions of him
2: were?
0: Yeah, yeah, listen, Michael was always, and I think especially in the you know, he he's always likes to stake his own territory or whatever, so, you know, he, from the beginning, I. I'd let him know who was boss, but basically, you know, things had to be, make financial sense that other, and, uh, and I think Michael obviously liked, not arguing, like fighting argument, but just a discussion where...
1: Oh, I think he liked arguing. <laughs> I think he got off on that. Getting the last word in,
2: you know, everything was a
0: game <laughs> for Michael. And, and unfortunately, I, I think as he got a little older and a little more messed up, but, you know, it, it, you know, the more he could shock people, the more funny you you got from the game and and uh yeah when i first hired michael unless i find like the first week or two my recollection and james would know better than you the first couple of years maybe in three years he didn't even do ecstasy of the night of his parties he would pretend he was you know white and and crazy and whatever and he was a court jester and, and 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 actually you know the next day he'd laugh about it because everybody thinks i was stoned but you know, and then he'd go off with Kiyoki that night to their apartment, and they'd do their ecstasy or whatever, and uh, I'd see him back on, on Friday.
1: He was the good businessman in the beginning. I mean, he, he knew what he was doing, and he
0: knew how to get the- – But I don't think he crossed over to heroin until the last year, no?
1: It was probably like around 94, 95 is when he was probably first starting to
0: – I don't know. Like I said, I never had friends around on heroin, and, and truthfully – and, you know, thinking back on it, when Michael was on heroin, he appeared more straight than when he was on heroin he and, you know, scratching and whatever. But I, I didn't pick up on it.
1: Then when you worked with uh, Eric Good from Area and Serge Becker and you went right. to open um, Club USA in Times Square. Right. Uh, how did you find that space? What, what was the space and how did you how did you go about
0: it? Yeah, you know, by that time, yeah. You know, um, this is 92, 93. Yeah, 91, 92. Yeah, yeah, it's probably 92. There are very few club owners that last truthfully much more than 18 months, two years. So you know, by that time, I was you know developing a reputation of of knowing what I'm doing. So I, I was starting to get other people. Ian Schrager was in partners with the guys that owned that property. You know, uh, it was a group that you know they also owned the, the Paramount at the time and, and the Royalton or whatever. So mm-hmm. Ian introduced me to Guy's name was Arthur Cohen who owned the building. It
1: was a theater, right?
0: Yeah, it was a theater. So I was brought to it with by Ian Schrager.
1: Then uh, Eric was was helping with the concept, and you brought in uh, Mugler, and you brought in Gautier to to design different rooms and different things. And there was that giant slide that I
0: remember. That slide is, yeah, even made it on the Seinfeld show.
1: People still talk about that slide going from the second floor to the first floor
0: into the dance floor. A couple times our busboys were actually charging people at the top. We don't find out, like, you
2: know,
0: (laughs) later, you know, two bucks or whatever. But Yeah, it was popular. And even our Sundays with Mark Berkeley, which uh, was a game that we used to call, uh, I think we called it Bump.
1: Oh, yeah, Bump, sure.
0: Yeah, because it was, you know, it was obviously, anyway, it was after the slide
1: you then bought the tunnel as well which um uh from was it ellie diane who owned it before who was
0: the when i took over the tunnel it had been abandoned for at least two years Mm -hmm. the last sort of incarnation i think it was more of a spanish club or or, or whatever so anyway um a realtor you know called me up saying why don't you go look at that space so i said you know fine i looked at it. it was too small for concepts i wanted to do but the landlord was more than willing to least extra space so yeah, you know, the tunnel that we had was probably at least three times the size if not four times the size of, of the original tunnel
1: well because you had the entire that tunnel you had the big space that went back in with the railroad
0: tracks that room that we did at the uh, at the far end you I mean?
1: oh the kenny charf room yeah yeah it yeah.
0: yeah. was the green room off of that or off the opposite side and then you know we, we did the whole hallway type. anyway uh, it was quite a bit larger
1: and you had you'd always bring in the skateboarders. They yeah, had yeah. A, a half pipe in the back, yeah. so you'd had one area that was all kids and skateboarders and stuff. And then you had the upstairs bathroom, which is where the
0: club kids congregated. We spent about I was on my back. It was about ten 000, twelve thousand dollars on props to develop a game show that we did behind. Do you remember that? Oh to... yeah, uh-huh. Lahoma well, did a game show, didn't she? Was that part of it? Yeah, RuPaul was part of it. You're right. Yeah, yeah i got to tell you, I was really pleased that, you know, I read somewhere RuPaul met her husband at Lime Life.
1: They, on the dance floor, yeah. And they're still together. <laughs> How many years, like, almost 30 years later.
0: Pretty really gratifying. You know, over the years I've had, you know, even like the last few times I've been in New York, I walked down the street and somebody would say, yeah, yeah, I met my wife at your place or I did this at your place or whatever. Very gratifying. I used to love it when people... The other night you see them exchanging phone numbers and that kind of stuff, and then you sort of smile, geez, I wonder how many people are leaving here or getting laid, and it was just like well, I
1: I have stories that I could that I, that I will still, you know, drag out every you know, every time I have a cocktail of getting laid in the bathrooms. Something I'm dying to ask you about is
3: is the fact that I think you were very unusual in that You know, most club owners only own one club. And you ended up at one point, I think, with three or four. I don't in Palladium, USA, Tunnel, Lime White. Four, yeah. And so, in that, I'm really curious to know about Rudolph Giuliani, um, because I know about Rudolph Giuliani from his days as the district attorney. Again, going against the you know, Ivan Boske and Michael Milken and all those Wall Street characters.
0: And he was seen yeah. as
3: this sort of popular hero. But I, I think at some point you must have felt that you were in his sights as a target. And I'm curious, given who he has subsequently become and what he's like...
2: or Well, he hasn't become that person. He always was that person.
3: Right. Now that he's been recognized as sure. a crazy lunatic he is, um, I, I'm just curious for your perspective on... on on dealing with him, because he led a very, you know, high profile campaign.
0: Man's a megalomaniac. And, and basically what happened is, if you remember right, he went after, you know, the squeegee people and went after, even went after the artists that used to sell good, uh, sell art around uh, the Met. Basically, my theory is he ran out of squeegee people. I, I don't think I'm tooting my horn or anything. Like I, I was the face of nightlife to anybody that, didn't pay much attention to nightlife i mean it wasn't like okay gene denino owned roxy but it wasn't exactly you know a, a, a half celebrity or whatever back then the new york post was um uh, basically a newsletter for giuliani and when he decided to come after me it was just like and I, you know we kept let's say we kept winning like okay you know, he closed us down on this stupid nuisance abatement thing they'd send in like 70 narcs, you know make it right really, the judges would reopen us you know three months later type thing but ob- obviously it was just you know, death by a thousand cuts. But I, I you know, uh, the guy's a mega maniac. I'm an easy target or nightlife's an easy target. Yeah, you know, I always remember, I, I, you know, I told a story when Open Club USA, you know, a captain from a local precinct came in and said, you know, Gation, I'm happy you're here and I'll tell you why. Because every night I'm in a pissed off mood, okay? I know I can go in on one of your place, torture you to death. Ben who was pretty connected or whatever, you know, heard, you know, Staff, why is it we can't fucking get this guy? Like, you know, you know, including my federal trial. Like, like nobody wins. When I say nobody, ninety-five percent of cases brought in by the feds, they they win. Okay, I was acquitted in three and a half hours, and not because I was literally White, but the fact of the matter is, you know, we did what our marching orders were from the police department. The police department you know, said, you know, tighten up this, you tighten up that, or, or whatever the case may be. And I'm not excited when they said Since 70 narcs in one night, they made three buys, you know, chicken shit buys. Nobody could survive that. In fact, one of the reasons we won that case with Ben, Ben had the Manhattan South Narcotics captain on the stand. He said, you ever mess a Madison Square Garden? Oh yeah, sure. How many? Well, some nights Ben, it was concert 150, 200. Well, how many times have they been closed? Yeah, you know, it was like, a- anyway, I don't know if everybody would have given me the benefit of doubt on what was, how much of a scoundrel he is, but I've got to believe, like, now, there's maybe what, you know, the mega crazy crowd, you know, people that might believe this shit, but nobody else does. Like, what a friggin' loser.
1: <laughs> At a certain point in, I guess, was it 95, 96, you had the DEA and the FBI, and everybody is coming in trying to get you and trying to bring you down when michael really loses his shit and and the the stuff with angel happened that was probably what the the impetus when they when they were finally able
0: yeah that happened i don't know if it was the impetus or you know the machinery was working or whatever let's put it this way uh public relations wise it was you know obviously a disaster for for angel but it was you know a disaster for not only a a, yeah night uh, for all of my life yeah yeah, I knew the club kid thing is, is, is a bunch of young people who really enjoyed going out in a secure environment that, yes, you know, some of them had their you know, emotional issues or, or they were harmless, basically, that, you know, they weren't like hurting people. They weren't dealing drugs in a violent way that, you know, dealing any of drugs. In fact, when I got arrested, you know, my prosecutor or my, uh, Investigator went to a few of them that, that you know I've actually gotten invited. He said, "You know, Peter, you won't believe how these people friggin' live. They, they don't have a friggin' penny. These are not big time drug dealers. These are just friggin' nickel time, you know, club kids that are trying to you know uh, make an evening or whatever. It's ridiculous." Anyway,
1: eventually they close the club and they come in and they take away everything. Talk a little bit about the downfall. The the the. Well, that. that... <sighs>
0: The actual pressure or, or campaign or terror campaign against me you know, actually accelerated after I got acquitted. It just got to the point, like I said, we had would you know, seventy hours to get closed down for three months. We, you, know, we, you know, we'd get closed down and it take three months to go to court. And every time the judges said, you know, what do you want, what, more do you want this guy to do? You know, it was, it was just, uh, it was ridiculous. So in the end, I. Sold limelight, I own the building. All of it went, truthfully, uh, for uh, back taxes and you know, penalties and, and, you know, uh, whatever. And if I had to do it over again today, the day after I got acquitted, I should have taken my tent, folded it, and then moved away. I, I, I should have just, and I just, yeah, I, I don't know if it's my Canadian naivety or whatever, but I just sort of believed, okay, they took me to court, they gave it their best shot, I let me go lick my wounds and start over again. They'll leave me alone. And it just got frigging worse and worse. The killer was the uh, deportation. Yeah. Like that the deportation. Like, hell. You know, I'd been here my most formative years from about 23 to, what was I, 55, I guess. Yeah, well, whatever it was. You know, my most formative years, all my friends, family, kids in school here, ta-da, ta ta I knew nobody in Toronto. In fact, the only reason I landed in Toronto is because the plane, you know, I was locked up for a month after the deportation hearing. They flew me into Toronto and that's how I ended up in Toronto. If they flew me into Montreal, I probably would end up in Montreal.
1: You've been in Toronto now for, um, I guess, 25 years, probably, you No, know, a little, yeah?
0: No, be about a dozen years. A
1: dozen years. Is it a place that you see yourself in or do you want to come back to New York?
0: I have an apartment in New York now. I was starting to spend a lot of time before COVID. In fact, you know, when COVID, you know, I, I actually my my book was released last year, and we we're going to do a you know a tour, and I had yeah, some really good stuff set up. And anyway, COVID hit. My book was re- released April first. COVID hit. I remember talking to my wife like the week before. Should we spend time in New York, or should we spend you know? I, I figured it would be like two weeks a month. I don't know. But
1: but at what point were you allowed to come back into the country?
0: About four years ago now.
1: About four years ago. Um, and you were able to come back and forth because you have uh, Native American, you have Native blood in you, or what was?
0: Yeah, yeah, I got a waiver, and I've got, I've, I've, I'm, yeah, i have fifty percent above Native.
1: That's interesting. And so you, so when the lockdown happened, you were able to go back and forth in a way that other people.
0: Oh yeah, I've been, yeah, excited. Yeah, I've been going back and forth. In fact, yeah, I was exploring the nightclub scene. You know, everybody always, you know, not everybody, I get a lot of calls, you know, come and look at this, come and look at that. And I was sort of looking at, and I was actually looking at Brooklyn and, and a few years ago, two, or three years ago, they were starting to do a lot of one night parties and whatever, and they were actually pretty good. They weren't lame like what's going on at One Oak and Marquee or whatever. You know, it was actually it reminded me of, of, of what limelight used to be like or, 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 uh, or tunnel or USA. I, I was sort of exploring it, you know, just to see like, you know, what was what was sort of happening there. So I've been going back to New York now for Three, four years. Do you ever see a time where there
1: would be a Peter Gation comeback and you would do clubs again? Is that something that you want?
0: No. 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 It's a young man's game.
2: What did you think when you heard about Michael passing this past Christmas?
0: You know, I think Michael is always a time bomb, okay? And you can only push envelopes so long. And and so far, and I, like I said, you know, like say, "Yo, was I sad about? It? Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, I don't like to see anybody dead. I had heard rumors, you know, like you know, friends of friends that knew Michael tried to help him in the last, you know, few years or whatever, and, and it were you know, most of the honest who gave up on him, mm-hmm. um, not because they didn't try. And these were nice people, you know, nice people that, that tried to help. He you know, obviously I had a very destructive personality, and I, I have a feeling it got worse. Yeah, in jail, do a little bit to your head also, so it's not like I, I'm belittling him or whatever. But yeah, you know, Michael, like, yeah. You know,
1: when was the last time you talked to him? I, 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 I wouldn't
0: talk. I, I wouldn't have talked to him. Yeah, I, I, You I, hadn't
1: probably talked to him in like 20 years, probably, right? Yeah,
0: probably, probably, yeah. yeah. You know, he said the last, when he was in jail. Very much, you know. I'm sorry. I apologize. Da 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 da. And then, even when he got out, you know, he did some. Yeah, not that I give a shit, It's sort of some like Peter Gation bashing that you know. I, I just like you know, he didn't learn anything, yeah. Like I said, yo, yeah,
1: it's true. He did, he did, he had 17 years in which to rehabilitate himself or
0: to come to a different idea, and he didn't really. And don't take this the wrong way or whatever, but for some people, like Arthur Weinstein, I love to death, okay. Ar- Arthur died, of you know, oh, yeah, of course, so, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Some people, I think, are not programmed yeah. to age, yeah to get old they're just not
1: it's true it's true there there's some yeah they're definitely people who have their moment in the sun and then
2: it's. did you understand that i mean because he looked up to you like did you kind of understand that early on like because you were watching
0: no listen michael really crossed the line with me and once when i say cross the line you know something in, in sort of like implying that i i was the one that owed angel money like I never got drugs from Angel in my friggin' life, you know. Trust me, Angel wasn't even allowed in the club. And then when, when and listen, I understand what the, the pressure fed feds could put on, but you know, he sold uh, me yeah. out. Yeah,
1: it's it's true. And I remember being very frustrated with Michael because you had been a mentor to him, and he had looked up to you. And he, when he sold you out, I remember thinking that that was a, a sort of a, a, it was a disgusting it was it was you know yeah,
0: you know it's like
2: even before that like when the darkness started happening it was like you know it manifested itself very specifically but like it just felt like he, you were you were there you did offer to put him
1: into rehab from many many times
0: i remember offering him and, and, and i remember elsie whose mother was you know, another you know character to say the least <laughs> you know coming to me to beg him to put and i said listen elsie i'll put him in be happy to do but i got you know what i've got to tell him is listen here's your choice whether you go or you're fired and i can't say and i cannot do the, the no firing part okay because then i have you know no credibility it'll never go oh no peter you can't do that you know you fire him he'll hang himself this that whatever you're going to send a time also yeah i've got I got three clubs at that point, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, a thousand employees or whatever. So, you know, Michael wasn't the you know, only thing, but do I think I went beyond the call of duty with him? Yeah. I, I can look myself in the mirror and say, you know what, I, yeah. I was more could have been expected and uh, he just friggin' punched me in the face, man.
1: Um, I do think, uh, as you point out in your book, that one of your lasting legacies is um, the hip hop nights and, and the, the things that oh, you yeah. did at Palladium when you would have. I remember Sean Combs was um, like a, Sean Puffy Combs was handing out flyers when he first hit the scene.
0: The other day, just I forget what I was looking at or whatever, but Anyway, they showed a picture of Jay-Z first album release party at the at the, at the Palladium
1: yeah and you had you know you had jay-z um was the promoter there you had lil kim 50 cents you had um all the uh, wu-tang clan everybody performed at
0: tunnel if you got to be on stage at tunnel sunday nights you had friggin bragging rights and and like you were big 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 dog on you know in, in, in the in the neighborhood and i remember uh, meeting um uh, did an interview uh, for the book with uh, who, who Kid, who you know was you know, a sort of secondary tertiary. He said, "When I was able to swim at Tunnel, I printed my own passes, okay, my own things. They were all out in the neighborhood. He had no idea what how meaningful that was. We were like, a, you know, And that, that night lasted for eight nine years, and, and everybody from now, Nas, Lil Kim, uh, you know Nas, Little Kim, you name the hip hop artists." Fatto, they, and we didn't pay them, okay? Nobody got paid that night. It was just great for their street cred, great for their their album, you know, that was dropping, you know, whatever. So many deals made there, all the record industries, and that. It, was, it was a girl night. When you look back
1: on your career, um, what club, when you think of London, Chicago, Atlanta, Florida, USA, Palladium Tunnel, Limelight, when were you happiest? And at what – can you look back on a, and pinpoint a time and say that if you could go back in a time machine, that you would go back to that?
0: Okay. The easiest times, there's a whole bunch, of, but the easiest times like I said we were the 70s. Okay. Uh, you, know, you know, again, no STDs, <laughs> no AIDS, no friends that are friggin' dropping off like flies from whatever. You know, Just an innocent time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and truthfully, you know, there you know, was there a DEA back then. I, I don't know, but it wasn't like you know, unless you were moving kilos or something like that, you certainly didn't worry about it.
1: <laughs> um, so maybe maybe go back to the beginning. Go back to to Grace Jones at, at the Rumbaum.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, those, you know, those are you know, great times. And you know, was I really happy, gratified between '90 90 and '96 or '91 and '96 when I had the four clubs and I could go from. Yeah, I, I could go from a, like a you know on a Sunday night from the you know the greatest hip hop artist to, to whatever to a you know go over to to uh limelight and there's you know uh Pearl Jam and and whatever you know and then
1: Prince performed uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers Marilyn Manson
0: yeah and from there to go to Club USA which Mark, Mark, Mark Berkeley used to have that bump night you'd have like literally 25 to 3500 just totally sweaty people having the best times of their you know life, and then you know going to play them that night. And uh, Nathan Lang was doing a, a benefit for uh, Broadway, Broadway Cares. Yeah, I felt like sort of like I was like guy in, in, in uh, Ed Sullivan Show with the spinning wheels and you know, the spinning plates. And, you know, Just run over, you know, over there to fix it and whatever. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like you know fun time.
1: Um, I remember your daughter uh, was involved in a lot of the clubs. I remember she was doing. I did the door with her at Limelight, The door with her at, at Tunnel. Um, she's the, she really grew into an amazing woman, didn't she? Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, well, you know, she listen. She was young at the time, You know, I basically I had the choice. Uh, at least if she's at my nightclub, and she used to do uh, do the guest list. Yeah, I, I, can, I can watch her wear. You know, I'm a nightclub guy. I know what men can do to women, whatever. So, anyways, it was. So it worked out well. Plus, obviously, she was my daughter. She was going to be honest. So, and you know, everybody else sitting at the guest list. You know, remember back then? You know, we'd have three, or four guest list people behind the counter at at, uh, or even up to five, six at uh, at tunnel or whatever. So it was good to have a person that you knew that was not handing out some comps to some. You know. Uh, best buddies or whatever that you know people got comps deserved them and you know people got reduced converted you know so it worked out. Yeah she is a uh, she has some amazing girl. Randy have you met her?
2: I never I met her back then, but I don't know Fenton knows her better than I do.
0: You remember uh, you you and uh, you two did the uh remember the video that we had at Club USA? Yeah.
2: Oh yeah with the pig with the
1: dancing yeah. pig and and everything. Yes. <laughs> That's, but I'd forgotten about that commercial that aired on like late night TV, didn't it?
0: No, what it was is when you went to the line, you know, the, the concept was, you know, a spoof on the '80s, you know, mega advertising and you know, perfect, you know, person advertising. So the concept, if I remember right, was almost like Disney, where you're walking in and this perfect person is telling you, you know, "Welcome to Club USA. Please, you know, go to the right." And there was, monitors, <laughs> yeah, there was eight monitors through the whole club, with was sort of. that's
2: the way I remember it I think right now yeah that was totally it And I I remember we used some public access personalities as some of the tour guides it was very um, post-postmodern like Robin Bird (laughs) not Robin Bird no even though we love her but not Robin Bird
1: (laughs) well Peter thank you so much for coming and I, I, I really enjoyed talking to you
0: it's got to be the fastest hour I've spent in a long time.
3: Peter, I love you. You're amazing. Thank you
0: so much. Oh, no, thank you very much. It was a real it's pleasure. Nice to to you Appreciate it. Bye. Money,
2: success.